Let's open in a word of prayer, and then we'll get going in our study of the book of Revelation. Father, we just praise you today that uh, you, in fact, have been pleased to let us know not only what uh, you plan in the far future, but uh, that sets a foundation for us to be able to rest in you and trust that you are not only trustworthy, but uh, you have things in your own hands and you are sovereign over all things and you will in fact accomplish all that you said that you will and as we look at this tremendous book lord we desire that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand what your word is teaching that we might uh, be clear in what you are trying to communicate to us and lord i just pray for clarity as well uh, clarity of understanding to be able to communicate and clarity of thought to be able to uh, share the things that you desire and those things that perhaps you would not I share that uh, maybe I might forget them. So we just commit this this time to you and ask that uh, your spirit would in fact work amongst us and I just pray that our, our hearts would be prepared and ready to hear what you have to say. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Well, the book of Revelation is one of the most fascinating books of all of the Bible. It's a book that uh, most people are either afraid of or uh, feel like it's too complicated to get into. So as a result, uh, most people neglect it. And yet, this is the only book of the Bible that actually promises a blessing for those that uh, read it, those that hear it, and those that obey it. Now, obviously, we're blessed anytime we're reading any portion of Scripture, even a, even a genealogy. But this book promises a blessing. So, most people miss that blessing because they just neglect the book. But this book, I consider one of the most important books in the entire Bible. I see Lindsay smiling because I start almost every one of my courses. This is the most important course you'll ever take in your life. <laughs> so I've got to get my little uh, plug in there. But sincerely, I, I, I mean it. And hopefully you will see that as we get into the text and... And even today, as I introduce it, hopefully it'll give you a, an appreciation for what God has revealed to us. So, what I'd like to do today is look at an introduction. And with this introduction, basically it will give you a foundation to be able to do your own study. And obviously, in a course, we only have a limited number of hours to be able to uh, uh, spend in the book. So, I'm not going to be able to deal with every single verse as you might do in a church setting where you would have more time to basically undefinite end time. So we've got to try to condense everything into the time frame that we've got. I'm going to spend a lot more time in chapter 1, and then after that we'll probably pick up and move quite a bit more rapidly. 
So that's kind of the idea in terms of uh, a course. You have to uh, fit things into the pattern. But with this introduction, it should give you a good enough foundation that you can go on from that and fill in the details of what we aren't not able to cover in the class. Now, I intend to look at every passage, but we won't necessarily expound in detail every passage. Some we'll spend more time in than others, those that uh, require a little bit more, more time. Uh, just to kind of emphasize how important this book is, well, before I do that, <clears throat> just kind of on a personal note, this book is really special to me. This was the very first book, believe it or not, I don't recommend this, but believe it or not, this book was the very first book that I sat down and seriously began to study verse by verse or sentence by sentence. Now, I had a reason for that. I had a motivation in that I was in the midst of sorting out. I was a relatively new believer, didn't have a, a lot of grounding, didn't know the Bible. Uh, I come from a Roman Catholic background and really didn't even have a Bible or open a Bible until after I became a believer or actually on the way to becoming a believer. So I... Uh, early on encountered a cult, a non-Christian cult that claimed that their leader was the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And uh, it was very intriguing and very clever. And for somebody that is not grounded in the word, it uh, was easily the hook to try to draw you in. And I had some other things going on as well that encouraged me to look into this cult. But in the process of looking into that, I, I got an interest in Bible prophecy. Uh, I was intrigued by it. And once I began to see that this was not right, there was something wrong here, I went to the book of Revelation because I thought, well, that's the prophecy of the Bible. And I started studying it. So this has always remained kind of a special book to me because it kind of got me into... Bible exposition and got me basically started in Bible teaching. And it was interesting that shortly after that, there was a group that were interested in the book of Revelation. They asked me to teach it. So, <laughs> so actually, this is one of the first books that I really actually taught as well. So it's special to me, and I hope uh, when we're done that it becomes a special book to you as well. So we're going to look at session one this evening. An introduction and the focus of our introduction will be different approaches, different views that people take on the book of Revelation. And this is another reason why people steer away from that, the book, because they feel like, well, how can he interpret it? You know, there are so many different ways of understanding it. Uh, there's no sense me trying to invent a new way. Uh, so it's just a book that's very confusing. So let's spend some time doing that. Uh, just to emphasize the importance, Walvoord says the following, even a casual reader of the book of Revelation is impressed with the tremendous scope of its prophecies. Here is obviously an important book, one intended by God to be a final word to man. I think that's a real good uh, encapsulation of the book. 
and shows why it is somewhat important. S. Lewis Johnson, who was real influential in my early understanding of Scripture, says the following. He calls it the Hallelujah Chorus of the Redeemed. A major theme of the book of Revelation is praise and worship. And that sometimes is, is lost. In fact, this is the, the great value of the book of Revelation. Uh, those of you that are intending to teach the book, I would not hesitate at all teaching the book to a church audience. In fact, I taught the whole book uh, in a church Sunday morning session with small children involved, uh, mainly because of the uh, emphasis on, on worship. And it gave us a lot of insight, and I think people had an appreciation for that. Leon Morris says, It is of the utmost importance for modern man that he does not lose touch with the eternal realities so stressed in Revelation. Perhaps there is no age for which its essential teaching is more relevant. That's the book of Revelation. So it's relevant to our age, our time, and I think you'll find a lot of practical things that are in the book that will encourage you in the spiritual realm. Graham Scroggie says the goal and consummation of all of the Bible is contained in the book of Revelation. So it gives us kind of the end of all things. You have to do something about that smoker's cough. <laughs> the goal and consummation of all of the Bible. Uh, that's another major theme and something that we'll see. And this is why it's so important. It's so important that you know the destination of all things. If you're going on a vacation, you need to know where you're going. You need to know the destination. Otherwise, you're just wandering and don't know uh, where you're headed. The book of Revelation tells us where God is headed. And if we know where He is headed, then uh, it gives us some clues as to where we should be headed and where, where we should have our heads. So those are just a few passages that, or uh, not passages, but uh, quotes from people that kind of stress the book, but let's look more carefully at some of the reasons why this is an important book. Number one, it's important just because of the emphasis of Scripture on prophecy, Bible prophecy. Can you tell me the most common genre of Scripture? In other words, literary form that uh, the writers of Scripture use. Are you familiar with literary form? The Bible is composed in a variety of literary form. It's not all the same. The, the letters of Paul are different from uh, the Pentateuch. Uh, the Psalms are different from the Proverbs of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the most prominent... Literary form of Bible. Anyone want to suggest a... Pearling. No, no, that's that's not literary form. Uh, 
historical narrative, exactly. Yes, historical narrative. Almost, well, a little over 40% of the Bible is historical narrative. What's number two, do you know? Literary form. Just think about it. What is the most passages in the Bible? Historical narrative, about 40%. Next, third is prophecy. Second is poet, poetic, a poetic literary form. In fact, a lot of the prophets are also poetic in literary form. So they have almost what you'd call two literary form. So it is very prominent in, in Scripture, just the amount of material that we have that we read if you read through the Scriptures. Uh, 17 of the 39 Old Testament books are prophetic in nature. 15% of all prophetic material is still unfulfilled. A quarter of the Bible, when it was written, was prophetic. In other words, one-fourth, one out of every four passages, if you will, in Scripture, when it was written anticipated or told us of things that were going to take place in the future. Now, a lot of that is fulfilled in, for example, the nation of Israel. But still, there's at least 15% that's unfulfilled. So, we have a large amount of material that God chose to reveal in a prophetic literary form. 23 of the 27 New Testament books contain prophecy. So we have a lot of prophecy. We have several Old Testament books that are predominantly prophetic. We have the, the major ones, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And then we have the 12 minor prophets. So a large portion of Scripture is, is prophetic one in twelve New Testament passages deals with the second coming. So that's a heavy emphasis on future things. One in ten of those occur in the epistles. The epistles are not predominantly prophetic, but there's still the prophetic themes that are in the epistles. So, it's just important just overall in terms of the amount of emphasis that Scripture places on prophetic material. The New Testament would be incomplete, secondly. second reason it's important. New Testament would be incomplete without the book of Revelation. And there are several reasons why it would be incomplete. If you just look at it theologically, and this is just one category, one reason in terms of the incompleteness of the New Testament. If you think about it, none of the doctrines, not of the, none of the theology of the, the rest of the Bible is really completed until we get to the book of Revelation. And you can go down the list 
these are just the categories of systematic theology. Theology proper, which is the study of God. We don't have a complete picture until we get to the book of Revelation. In fact, one of the categories here is Christology. But if you just think in terms of God, particularly his plan, issues related to his plan, Issues related to even his character. Now, the rest of the Old Testament and New Testament gives a pretty full picture of his nature. But we have all of that confirmed and reiterated and emphasized in the book of Revelation. The doctrine of God. And each person of the Trinity is emphasized. In fact, tomorrow when we look at chapter 1, we're going to see that the book is Trinitarian in nature. Uh, You see evidence of the emphasis of all three persons of the Trinity. Christology is not complete without the book of Revelation. We find out the final work, the final ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some scholars have called the book of Revelation the fifth gospel. We'll talk some more about that. I'll give you some reasons why it's called the fifth gospel. We have four Gospels that portray Jesus Christ in his earthly life and ministry and earthly purpose. The book of Revelation gives a fifth picture, a fifth portrait that's totally different from all of the others. But it gives us another dimension of who Jesus Christ is. It pictures for us rather than the earthly Christ, it pictures the glorified Christ. And the book starts off with this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christology would not be complete without the book of Revelation. Anthropology, the study of man, would be incomplete. We don't know, we wouldn't know, apart from the book of Revelation, a lot of the details concerning what God has for you and I in the future. It's from the book of Revelation that we finally have the book closed on where not only we end up, but in terms of how practical living today will be worked out in the future. Uh, There's some real specific and very clear passages in the book of Revelation that encourage us in a very practical way to live the Christian life today. It has ramifications, and we see that in the book of Revelation. And there's other aspects of anthropology. Uh, Another area of theology, if I can get the thing to come up here. Soteriology, that's the doctrine of salvation. Obviously, our salvation is not complete. We still await... Final stages, we still await glorification. The book of Revelation gives us some insight on that aspect of salvation. And in terms of the completed soteriology of the church, we have some insight on that as well. Angelology. You can come up with a complete angelology just from the book of Revelation. Angels are very prominent. We'll come back and talk some more about that. Angels are just all over the book. They're involved in all kinds of ways. And you could develop 
a total theology of angelology just from the book of Revelation. In fact, more so than any other book of the Bible, angels are prominent. So this just gives you an idea. And then obviously the area that we call eschatology. This is the last chapter in God's uh, work in terms of history. So that just gives you a feel for some of the reasons why the New Testament would be incomplete. You can We can talk about some other areas as well, but we don't want to belabor that. Third reason the book is important. If I can get it to come up, for some reason, this computer is giving me problems. Well, that third thing was gives us a perspective on history. The Eastern mind has this cyclic idea that uh, the the universe goes in cycles, may repeat itself. The idea of reincarnation, we come back. You know that idea. That's kind of an Eastern idea. That's not the biblical idea. Biblical idea. On history, we have a biblical perspective. We have eternity to eternity and something in between. We have a definite creation. The things around us are not eternal, only God is eternal. But we have an interruption in that very good creation. After Genesis 1, we have a fall. The secular mind, philosophy, paganism. Any religion does not have this concept concerning evil that it has a beginning. It's only the biblical worldview that we have a beginning for sin and evil. And that starts in the book of Genesis. Now, the reason I mention this is because the book of Revelation is going to wrap up all of these issues. It's going to deal with things of creation that were intended. We'll see that in a moment. And it's going to deal mainly with this issue of the fall. It's going to complete the issue. Come on in and join us. So it's going to deal with uh, the issue of evil. It has a beginning. And history has a purpose. History is going in a direction. It's not cyclic. It has a purpose. has a design. God is going to deal with evil. In fact, history is kind of the outworking of evil and how God is dealing with it. And the Bible tells us that God is going to ultimately complete a plan of dealing with evil. We call that restoration. And if you compare the book of Revelation, there are a lot of parallels between the book of Revelation and what we have in the book of Genesis, particularly uh, creation and first few chapters in the book of Revelation. So we have restoration, which means that evil is bounded. That's only a biblical worldview that has that. The book of Revelation completes the Bible by giving us this aspect of how God completes that plan. How God finally deals with evil. All of the enemies of God are dealt with. You can't think of a single one. 
And in the book of Revelation, we'll see in stages how God will deal with sinful angels, how he'll deal with uh, sinful men, how he'll deal with uh, a sinful personage by the name of Antichrist, how he will deal with Satan himself, how he will deal even with the the, uh, fallen world. And the main theme there is this idea of restoration. God's going to restore what he began in the original creation. And that includes mankind. So, uh, this gives us a different perspective of history. Press the wrong button. Mention this parallel between book of Revelation and Genesis. In Genesis, we have the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation closes the book on the new heaven and the new earth. Those are the last two chapters of the book. So the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. And the book of Revelation completes that. We have earth as the priority. In verse 2, you would almost expect on day one, God is going to create the earth. Uh, But it says in verse 2, and the earth was without form and void. It it, it doesn't talk about the creation of the earth. It's implied from 1-1, but we don't have it there. So the second verse puts the earth as a priority. And if you read the book of Revelation, the earth not only remains a priority, but it also fulfills what God intended. But we have a new earth, a renewed earth. The new heavens and the new earth. Sin and evil, as we just mentioned, enter in. And the book of Revelation ends that. Banishes it. Completes it. Confines it. Evil is confined in the lake of fire. We have the curse in Genesis 3 that effectively destroys the environment. Damages mankind has an effect even in the universe and in the book of Revelation. These are just a few also, the kind of the main parallels. We have the curse removed. Now, it's not immediately removed in the uh, kingdom. We'll talk about that in chapter 20. It's lifted such that its effects are limited of the curse, not like they are now. But it is totally removed in the new heavens and the new earth. We have the first Adam, and you could guess that in the book of Revelation, the focus is the second Adam, or Jesus Christ. We have the garden that is to be tended by man and managed. And we have a garden that's restored in the book of Revelation. Chapter 1 gives us the purpose of mankind to be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, and have dominion over the earth. God intended man to be a delegated sovereign over the earth because of sin and evil. Man forfeited that. And the history is just, all of world history is just a record of how. Uh, Satan has had sovereignty and had an impact on mankind. 
God began in Genesis 3 to begin the process of redemption, and that process is not completed until the book of Revelation. And that role and that purpose of mankind is fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. We will reign with Christ. So these are just a few examples of why uh, the book of Revelation is important. We have God's perspective on history. Fourthly, this is the book that emphasizes that the only hope is Jesus Christ. The only way of salvation is Jesus Christ. And there's passages that emphasize that aspect. And we've already mentioned the fifth gospel. You have a, a complete Christology. Well, not a complete Christology, but you have a, an emphasis on Christology in terms of Jesus Christ. The main pers- person that is the focus of the whole book is given in verse 1. We'll focus on that tomorrow. The revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the main focus. He is the main concept, the main idea in the book. It's an unveiling. That's what revelation is. It's an unveiling of Jesus Christ in a, in a, in a way that uh, is not revealed anywhere else. So that is why it's important. It's also re- important because more than any book, perhaps... The book of Revelation reveals the glory of God. And what we mean by the glory of God is we're going to see many aspects. The full revelation of who God is we call the glory of God. Uh, The emphasis will be His judgment. It will also be His wrath. But we see a lot of uh, notes of grace as well. A lot of grace in the book of Revelation. So the book is important. And that's why we want to spend some time on it. There's a couple of attitudes that people have had in uh, studying the book or dealing with it. A lot of people look at it as a puzzle. It's got all these frogs and angels and beasts and creatures and all these things. How do you put it all together? Uh, So some people are confused by it. And I'm talking about scholars mainly. Winston Churchill described the Soviet Union and another commentator said that uh, this quote of Churchill would be applicable to the book of Revelation in the minds of a lot of people. Uh, Churchill said concerning the Soviet Union, it's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. (laughs) And that's the viewpoint that people have on the book of Revelation. Uh, Personally, and I think a lot of scholars would disagree with that, but here's kind of another quote. Uh, The book of Revelation is a famous book in which St. John the Divine concealed all that he knew. The revealing is done by the commentators who know nothing. (laughs) So, to these people, it's it's a puzzle. But I think you will agree that it's not a puzzle. It is, in fact... A masterpiece. And that's what we want to see as we read through the book. It's a masterful work. In fact, it's a work that man could not compose. 
And John basically writes very little in the book. All he does is he just records what he sees. And God lays out all these visions before him and he just records them. Well, let's spend the next few minutes looking at these different views and the reason some people believe it's a puzzle. We call these hermeneutical views or we could call them interpretive views. And we want to know these things because of all of the books that you buy in a bookstore, you probably want to be most careful in buying a book that is dealing with the book of Revelation. You want to make sure that that book is what you intend, what you want in, in terms of uh, what you want to gain out of it. I'm not saying you shouldn't read books that disagree with the perspective that we will present. But uh, be aware before you buy it because you may not want that, that perspective on it. Be very, very careful. There are very, very few books, really, that will approach the book from the perspective that we will. The book of Revelation, I think Walbert says this, isn't hard to understand. And I'm hoping that by the end of the class you'll agree with this. The book of Revelation isn't hard to understand. It's hard to believe. And this is the main problem that commentators have with it. There are some strange things in it, and there are some things in the book that are unimaginable. unimaginable. Uh, there's a series of judgments, and after one of the judgments, it talks about a third of the earth being destroyed, a third of mankind being destroyed. If that were to happen today, and you're talking about seven billion people, it's talking about the death in a very short period of time. Uh, what's a third of that? 2.75? You get that right. Get that right. You're the math math guy. <laughs> uh, can you imagine that many people dying in a very short... I mean, that's that, it boggles our minds. The book talks about things like that. So commentators say, well, that, you know, that, that's impossible. So there's tendencies to try to get around some of the things that are presented in the book of Revelation. And again, hopefully, as we see, why, why are these things happening? I'm going to try and give you the reasons from God's perspective why these things must take place. Uh, why, why do we have such scary things in the book of Revelation? So we're going to have a problem not understanding the passage, I'm hoping, uh, it's going to be it's going to test our faith to believe that these things are really going to happen. Uh, the magnitude of what we have presented in the book is is huge. Okay. The first viewpoint is called the preterist viewpoint. And and by the way, on your outline sheets, they're 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 not designed for you to take too many notes. They're they're designed more to kind of give you where I'm heading, so you kind of have a feel for where I'm heading. So if you're trying to take notes on these, you may not have enough room. Uh, there is, and this is becoming more popular, this, this viewpoint is called the preterist. It just means past. The, the, that's the meaning of the word itself. And the essence of this viewpoint is most of the prophetic events in the book of Revelation 
taking place in the first century or took place already. In other words, most of the book is already fulfilled. This is a very popular view today in some circles particularly. If you use a timeline, and if you're a little bit familiar, we'll talk some more about this timeline. You have Jesus Christ dying on the cross, and in the first century, a major event took place in 70 A.D. The destruction of Jerusalem and the scattering of the nation of Israel. This is a historical event. Uh, The preterist view sees those awful days before the final destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the removal of most of the Jews from Palestine as the period of tribulation that is described in the book of Revelation. And in fact, the complete preterists see the second coming in 70 A.D. In a spiritual form, in a spiritual way, in in the form of judgment. Okay? So Christ's return is right there. They would see us living... So most preterists are also amillennialists. In fact, post-millennialists as well. So they would see us living in this kingdom era. That's preterism, I guess is how you pronounce it. I'm an engineer, so I have trouble with words. There is a moderate preterist viewpoint because it's, it's really hard to interpret some passages... Well, you can't. You you absolutely can't uh, interpret them literally as all being fulfilled before 70 A.D. and then 70 A.D. So some have moderated and see Christ's return after the kingdom. These would be predominantly post-millennialists. And some, some events related to the second coming they would put over here, still in the future. Because it's really hard to put the second coming right here. You have to really play tricks. How do they do that? In the form of judgment. Uh, and also, they use the day of Pentecost as Christ came when the Holy Spirit came. But, like I said, that's non-literal interpretation. Uh, this is probably more common than the... Uh, the uh, full preterist viewpoint. Uh, just so you know who some of these people are, uh, an older writer, and, and, and by the way, this is a pretty good commentary, H.B. Sweet, but he does take a preterist viewpoint. So you have to take that into account. R.H. Charles, now he's a liberal. This is a surprising one, R.C. Sproul. Very... Um, Reformed theologian. In fact, Reformed theology tends towards preterism. A lot of Reformed theologians are in terms of eschatology. Now, Reformed theology formally is amillennial, obviously. Okay? Feel free to ask questions, girls. (laughs) This is the class. I'm going to be using words, and if you're not familiar, just... Okay. Reform. Um, 
that's basically Calvinism, one step, historically. Okay, Calvinism. Um, it's a whole denomination, or can be a whole denomination, the Reformed Church. Okay. Uh, there are some strengths you, you can gain. They do a lot of good work in terms of uh, history of the first century. So if you do happen to buy one of these books by mistake and don't want to throw it away, go ahead and read it. <laughs> uh, because they do excellent work there. The problem is, is when they try to tie those historical details to the scriptures, then I think you get a little bit off base. But they do a lot of historical work there. Uh, the advantage would be that if, if, in fact, God fulfilled all of this, the original readers would have an immediate impact. Uh, and this last one would be the strength that they would give. A second view or approach hermeneutically. Hermeneutics is the science of interpretation. They look at prophetic events taking place in history from the first century to the basically the end of church age. That's a historicist viewpoint. You may have uh, even, you probably all heard, for example, the interpretation of the churches in chapters 2 through 3, 2 and 3, where Ephesus kind of represents the apostolic church. Laodicea represents the uh, church at the end of the age. Uh, that's an historicist approach. Okay? But they do that with the other events as well. Let me give you some examples. Uh, the seven letters would be kind of an outline of church history, the idea I just gave you right now. Secondly, another example would be the seal judgments. They would tie that with the fall of the Roman Empire. Now, uh, they also disagree quite a bit on what these things represent. And that's one of the major weaknesses. The beasts is the papacy, the, the Roman Catholic Church, basically. By the way, this, this approach came about during the Reformation, during the Protestant Reformation. So, John Calvin, uh, Luther, they were historicists. They took a historicist viewpoint. So, they, they were in the middle of dealing with the Roman Catholic Church. So, a, a lot of what they see in the book of Revelation is the papacy. So, that first beast in Revelation 13, which we identify as Antichrist, that was the pope that was probably present at the time. The second beast is another pope. Uh, this is just examples of how they would interpret some of the passages. Uh, the trumpet judgments would entail the period of time between 395 to 1453. I'm not exactly sure what happened in 395 or 1453. <laughs> so the trumpet judgments of chapters 8 and 9, uh, that describes that period of time supposedly. And like I said, uh, not all of them will strictly hold a these exactly. The bowls, at least one commentator sees the French Revolution. Okay. 
those that kind of hold of these uh, well-known and good. Uh, Henry Alford is an excellent commentator. Except in the book of Revelation. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it him in the book of Revelation, but I, I could recommend him. He's excellent in the letters. For example, the letters of Paul. Uh, I've got his set of commentaries. It's an old, he's an old commentator, but I find it useful. Uh, all the reformers were basically historicists. They tend, post-millennialists tend to be historicists. Strengths makes the book somewhat prophetic. So it's kind of a little step beyond the uh, preterist. This is an interesting one. The idealist approach. It's a picture in symbolic form of eternal principles. So don't think in terms of fulfillment. Don't think in terms of history. Don't think in terms of events. Think in terms of imagery that is giving you principles. Principles like uh, the church eventually triumphs. God finally wins. Satan loses. Those kinds of things. Here's a quote from an idealist approach. While the apocalypse, that's Revelation, thus embraces the whole period of the Christian dispensation, it sets before us within this period the action of great principles. That's why I've kind of highlighted that word there. And not special incidents. We are not to look in the apocalypse for special events, but for an exhibition of the principles which govern the history both of the world and the church. It's an idealist approach. By the way, I've purchased books from each of these perspectives mainly to, to see how, how do they interpret stuff. Some proponents, William Hendrickson, you've probably heard of him. He's also a very good commentator. Uh, just have problems with his book of Revelation. Lenski, I use his commentaries. Strengths Bible does contain eternal principles. In fact, this is a good way to interpret Scripture, but you have to start with a literal grammatical contextual approach, which we will do, and then do find eternal principles behind that, because that's the step to take to apply. But they bypass, the idealist bypasses the, the core interpretation of passages and goes straight to these eternal principles, which is, I think is a mistake. The viewpoint that we will take is what is described as the futurist approach. Most events will be taking place in the future. And particularly beginning in chapter 4. Everything from chapter 4 on is basically future from the church age. Future from our time frame. The rapture is not contained in the book of Revelation... There's a passage that may hint at it. 
uh, might imply it, but uh, and there's a reason for that. I'll, I'll tell you that when we get to that point. Uh, there's a reason that the rapture is not included. But after the rapture, beginning in chapter 4, the events begin to take place in the future. Now, I will also take... Uh, I'm not going to get into the millennial views at this time. We'll do that when we get to chapter 20. So we'll do that the next part of the class. And I'll give you the millennial views probably briefly, but we'll talk about them then. Uh, But we will approach the book from what is called a premillennial approach, which the foundation for premillennialism is a literal approach. We'll talk a little bit more about this. In other words, I take everything in the book of Revelation literally in the sense that I try to find out what did the author intend to communicate rather than how might I, in my wisdom, understand what is written down. Uh, I need to go and find out what did John intend or what did God intend when he revealed these things to John. That's the literal approach. The literal approach does not deny that there are symbols and imagery and things that uh, are non-literal. There's lots of non-literal things in the book. But let John tell you when he's using a simile. Let John tell you when he's using a metaphor. And we'll talk some more about this. And if you do that, what just naturally falls out is a pre-millennial approach. The amillennial and the post-millennial, in fact, all those other hermeneutical views, all take a non-literal approach. That's the only way that you can interpret the book that way in those other approaches. If you remain literal, if you remain grammatical, historical, you will end up premillennial. Okay, And that's the approach that we'll take. Proponents, John Walvred, who writes a lot of prophetic works, J.D. Uh, Pentecost, most dispensationalists, C.L. Feinberg. These are people that you probably are familiar with. This church, should put that on the list there. <laughs> Play Roma, put that down there. <laughs> the strengths uh, and the huge strength is that it maintains a consistent hermeneutic. Many of those scholars that I quoted that I said were good scholars, they generally take a grammatical historical approach except with the book of Revelation. And sometimes except with the book of Genesis as well. So here's kind of a summary of the approaches. The preterist, everything is fulfilled here right after Christ. Historicist, fulfillment begins at the beginning, and then goes throughout history and extends into the future. That's a historicist viewpoint. The idealist doesn't look down at the earth at events, just kind of looks up. (coughs) Principles. And the futurist sees the bulk of the book of Revelation as taking place in the future. So on one little sheet there on that timeline, we have the approaches. There are some commentaries that uh, 
try to combine the uh, views, not all of them, but some of them, combining more than one, we would call that kind of an eclectic approach. Uh, some examples of these would be proponents, uh, Leon Morris's commentary, uh, Mounts's commentary in the book of Revelation is eclectic. Uh, one that I've got on the list of reading, uh, Osborne, this is a very good commentary, but you need to just keep in mind that he will kind of uh, bounce around. But he's complete enough that he'll tell you that too. Uh, the strengths is it combines the best of views. Okay. Let's begin a little bit of the background, and then we'll, we'll take a break. By the way, we're going to take uh, one and a half hour sessions, if that's okay with everyone. So if you need to get up, if you need to stretch, just, just do it. Don't, don't worry about it. And uh, if you need to go to the bathroom as well. But we'll take a break uh, after an hour and a half, and we're getting close, correct? Okay. Oh, is that all? Oh, we got lots of time. Okay. If I had known we had that much time, I kind of skipped over some stuff there. I could have given you some weaknesses of all of those approaches, but I think we've had enough. I think you're probably not that interested in them anyway. <laughs> A little bit of the background of the book. Uh, let's look at the authorship. The book identifies himself as John. And I think the evidence, if you put together all of the little pieces of information in the book, not just the name John, uh, John mentions himself, for example, look at uh, verse 1. Would somebody care to read uh, the first verse? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bond servants the things which must take, soon take place. And he sent communicated it by his angel to his bond servant John. To his bond servant John. Okay. Do you want to read verse 4, Brad? Okay, John. Lindsay, you want to read nine? <laughs> okay, I, John. The last one, if you want it, is in chapter 22, verse 8. So, somebody by the name of John claims to have written the book, and all of the evidence points to the Apostle John. Uh, you can look at the evidence uh, in two categories. One, internal evidence, the, the identification by the name. Uh, there are not too many Johns. Well, there's John the Baptist, but he died too soon to have been written to have written the book. Um, there's a lot of similarities with the gospel. 
So John is named, similarities with the gospel. There's a lot of differences as well, but the differences can be attributed to the difference in subject material or subject matter. But he uses, for example, the lamb. He refers to Christ as the lamb. And it's in the Gospel of John where that phraseology, the lamb of God, is prominent. Uh, He uses the lagos in chapter 19. uh, Water of life. These are phrases that only John uses. They're unique to the Gospel, the fourth Gospel, and to uh, the book of Revelation. The concept of overcomers or overcoming is unique to John. Keeping commandments is a little phrase John likes in the Gospels. That's common in the book of Revelation and in 1 John as well. Uh, Invitation to him that is thirsty, that's a Johannine phrase. White clothing for angels. John identifies the angel at the resurrection as wearing white clothing. Things like that. A lot of similarities in in words and phrases that are not found in other books or other writers, rather. And there's several others. There's a continuity between what John reveals and the book of Revelation. No doctrinal differences. In fact, some doctrinal similarities. The concept of eternality is the same in John, whereas Paul and Luke seem to use the word eternal a little bit differently, but John is consistent. So there's continuity. John is familiar with Asia Minor. And historically, we know that John spent some time in Ephesus. He's believed to have uh, been the leader of the Ephesian church in the latter part of the uh, first century. So that's some of the internal evidence that we would argue that John the Apostle is the writer. External evidence consists of things outside of the book of Revelation, writers, commentators outside the early church attributed the book of Revelation to John. Uh, The strongest evidence is Irenaeus, a church father by the name of Irenaeus. There's a quote that uh, ties John to the book. And this this is a very early quote. This is early 2nd century. So this is within less than a decade or about a decade from what we will consider the writing of the book. And most scholars that hold to this date, the early date or the late date of the book of Revelation use Irenaeus. But not only does he kind of speak in terms of the dating, but also uh, John as the writer. There's evidence that historically that John was on the island of Patmos, and he mentions that in the book. We'll look at that as well. Clement of Alexandria mentions that John was on the island. So does uh, Irenaeus. Uh, Eusebius, Eusebius 
dates John's return from Patmos following the death of Domitian in 96 A.D. So we have early historical evidence that ties John with either the book directly, like Irenaeus, or with events surrounding the book. The early opposition didn't come, I think, until like the third century. And most scholars, uh, there are very few that go against John as the author. We'll talk a little bit about John when we get to chapter 1 in terms of his ministry, just briefly, just kind of a brief outline of it. little historical background in terms of what was going on historically. We could look at this politically. Oops. One of the main things that touches on the book at this time, there was a persecution of the church, a pretty widespread persecution of the church when the book was written. What is real common in prophetic material, and I'm talking about Old Testament prophetic books, most a lot of those books were written when Israel was suffering and in some cases persecuted. Uh, for example, the exilic prophets were written when Israel was destroyed as a nation and were in exile. So they were suffering. Uh, they were not happy people. People. Uh, it seems that God reveals some insight into his future to give persecuting Christians a, a different perspective so they can endure. And that's what the book of Revelation is. So it's written to people that were persecuted. So that's a major theme. Uh, Domitian is the, the main instigator of the persecution. That's a piece of art from Ephesus that is supposed to be the Emperor Domitian. Politically, uh, the main thing there would be persecution. Socially, it was a prosperous time for the Roman Empire, not so much for Christians, but Romans were fairly well off, the Roman Empire. Religiously, idolatry had pretty much run a course amongst the culture. If you remember, the Romans had their gods, the Greeks had all of their gods, and before the end of the first century, there were all these mystery religions. The, the occult was strong. Uh, the book is written in that environment. Uh, the emperors demanded worship. And Domitian was one of them. Nero was one of the first to demand worship. And you have hints of that. In fact... Uh, the beast, if you, are, if you are a believer reading the book of Revelation early on, you might even think that these emperors might have been some of these beasts that you have in the book of Revelation. 
And by way of application, it might have been applicable to them. Obviously, we're removed from that and realize that a literal interpretation would not apply. So that's a little bit of the historical background. The occasion of the book and the specific date of writing on the slide there is 95 to 96. So this is at the end of the first century. Obviously, the last book of the Bible to be written, God's last word to mankind. A major issue there was, as I said, the, the persecution of the church, and particularly the emperor worship. And if you didn't worship the emperor, then you were basically persecuted. Julius Caesar was worshipped. He didn't demand it. Augustus built temples to himself. Tiberius, unusually, uh, discouraged the practice of emperor worship, but Caligula demanded it. And then from then on, most of them, like Nero and Domitian, expected the people to worship them. Now, this is, it's, it's important. There's a lot of reasons to hold a 95 to 96. Uh, this is a major conflict with the... Uh, well, let me ask you, who would disagree with this dating? The preterists. In fact, if there's enough evidence to date the book, 95-96, it basically eliminates the preterist viewpoint. Because all these things are written after the fact, and they're not written as a historical note. They're, they're written as prophetic. Uh, so the preterist has a real hard time. They they have to date the book before 70 A.D. So all of the preterists will date the book in about 68, 69 A.D. and, and earlier. <clears throat> Part of the occasion, John is on the island of Patmos. Just a few visuals here. A Google Earth map. That's what the island looks like from satellite. Probably uh, archaeologists don't really know, but somewhere in this region, this is a city by the name of Patmos, but the whole island is named after the city. It's believed that somewhere in here is where John was when he received these revelations. And I say these revelations, <clears throat> I should be careful because a lot of people describe the book as revelation, the book of revelations. It's not good. It's the revelation, singular. John did receive a series of revelations, but the book itself is the revelation. On a map, and that's where Patmos would be located. If you know Asia Minor, uh, this is about 70 miles from Ephesus as the crow flies. 
This is Asia Minor here. In fact, I'll show you all of the seven cities in a moment. In that little strip that I showed you <clears throat> on that satellite map uh, is where this monastery this monastery is located. It was designed to commemorate <clears throat> John as the writer of the book. Uh, that's a modern-day photograph, obviously. The audience will give a lot of attention to that because we'll get into chapters 2 and 3, and I'll show you lots of photographs from uh, each of these churches. <clears throat> Most of them I was able to take myself. Uh, just Here's another Google Earth map. There's Ephesus down here. The island of Patmos is a little bit off the uh, coast there. And it seemed that uh, the, uh, the letters were sent in somewhat of an oval. I don't know if a messenger was sent, stopped off here, stopped off there, dropped copies of the book there, dropped the copies there. But the seven churches would be Smyrna, Pergamum. We'll look at these later. Thyatira, Philadelphia, or Sardis, then Philadelphia. It's not Pennsylvania, by the way. <clears throat> I think Pennsylvania may have been, I don't know, uh, may have been named because of the name. And then finally, Laodicea. So those are the seven churches of the book of Revelation. I can't remember the distance between this circle, but it's, it's only about 100 miles, so it's in a small, relatively small area. Probably all of those churches were probably started when Paul, or over here, when Paul was ministering in Ephesus. His disciples probably founded churches in this whole area. And I can't remember, but there's over 100 churches, they believe, in the first century that... Uh, were founded in that area, and probably mainly the disciples of Paul from Ephesus. We'll talk about why these seven. In fact, there were some others that are more prominent than these seven. We'll talk about that uh, later on. So that's the audience. The purpose... I see at least a threefold purpose of the book. The main purpose is encouragement. If you're suffering, if you're persecuted, you need uh, to be encouraged. And the book of Revelation encourages people because it gives us or anyone, anyone that's suffering, a totally different perspective on everything, particularly history and what God is doing. How is God working? What is God doing? So you have encouragement, and if you know how things are going to end, you can pretty much endure just about anything. If you know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, you can usually... And handle the difficulty you're going through. I've heard stories from most of the, war, the wars, World War II, World War I, 
and people that were put in uh, POW camps. Uh, one of the things that uh, I think the Koreans at least did, and I think others as well, I think the Japanese, the way they would break down our soldiers would uh, give them the sense that uh, there was no way they were going to escape, there was no way that they were going to get out of here, that uh, they had no future. And those that bought into that and didn't resist that because they had no hope, uh, many of them just died prematurely. They got sick or they just seemed to give up. They just couldn't survive. It was only those that had kind of a perspective and, and kind of a, an idea, I'm going to get out of here or the, the Americans are going to come and they're going to, they're going to rescue. Those that kind of maintained hope, that maintained the idea that uh, this isn't the end here. Uh, they were the ones that were the survivors. Uh, similarly, if we understand what God is doing in history, if we understand how he is going to work all things, and if he is sovereign, and by the way, that's one of the major themes of the book of Revelation, is God's sovereign hand. And if we have a feel for that and understand that, uh, we can probably endure virtually anything. There's lots of martyrs in the book, people that endured the ultimate and paid the ultimate price, and they could do that because they knew that uh, this life was nothing, basically, and we have a future, in fact, a glorious future. So the book primarily gives hope, and it's an encouragement. This book, by the way, also has... Blessings promised, not only the one in chapter 1, verse 3, the blessing to those who read, who hear, and who obey, but in chapter 7, there's the blessing of those that God sees who are suffering, chapter 7, verse 14. It's kind of a beatitude, if you will. No, that's not the right verse. Uh, chapter 14, verse 13. I'm sorry. Uh, to those who die in Christ, they are blessed. A blessing, special blessing on martyrs, basically. Chapter 14. Uh, there's another blessing in chapter 16, verse 15. For those that stay awake and keep their garments unsoiled. In other words, those that are faithful in the midst of suffering. A special blessing. Chapter 19, verse 9. To those who, that, that are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, they have a special blessing. Chapter 20, verse 6. To those of the first resurrection, they are blessed. Chapter 22, verse 7, to those heeding the words of this prophecy. This is the conclusion. So it's kind of similar to the beginning in verse 3, a blessing to those that heed the words of the prophecy. So also in chapter 22, verse 7. And then verse 14, to those who wash their robes. Special blessing. So the book is an encouragement. We do see the power of God. We see God working in a mighty way. We see God's hand at every turn. 
We see angels, and the Bible seems to indicate that there are guardian angels. So it, it's part of what God wants us to know and understand in order to be encouraged to be able to face whatever we do. And in the first century, the believer was facing persecution. So it's appropriate. So you can gain a lot of encouragement. By the way, prophecy in general, whether it's Old Testament or the book of Revelation, most of prophecy has this as a purpose. Because most believers were suffering in the Old Testament. So this is a real common theme in a lot of the prophets. Also, all of the prophecies that we have in the Bible are not written to satisfy our curiosity. That's not the purpose of Bible prophecy. It does that. In other words, it's interesting to know what God's going to do, but that's not the purpose of it. There is always in every passage, every book that is prophetic, there's always a practical reason Sometimes it's to warn us, and the book of Revelation serves as a warning as well. To warn us of things that we might face even today, even though we may not experience what's going on in the book of Revelation. The second purpose is preparation. First of all, it was preparation for the first century church in their early mission, and it prepared them to to face a hostile world, and it gave them a foundation to be able to respond to that hostile world. It's preparation for us today because it talks about overcoming and the importance of walking in the Lord, the importance of being faithful in our Christian walk. That's one of the major thrusts of chapters 2 and 3. The concept of overcoming. It's a very, very practical purpose. It's going to be especially a preparation for those that uh, see the fulfillment or the beginning of fulfillment of events when they begin to unfold. Uh, particularly those that go through this period of time that's described in chapter 4 through 19. We call that tribulation. Okay? So it'll be especially a preparation for them. They will have insight into what God is doing, why things are happening, and what's going on in the world, and why it's important to be faithful in that period of time. So it's a, a book that prepares us for whatever may come about. I skipped the third one there. Another reason why it's important, it gives us the completion of all things. I talked about that in our little introduction there. If you want how God consummates all things, it answers a lot, of quest, a lot of theological questions, particularly relating to the nation of Israel. What happens to Jewish people? Uh, we might have some insight into why, why did the nation of Israel come back to the land? Uh, this, is, this is a modern-day uh, miracle that the nation of Israel is back in the land of Palestine. 
they were scattered in 70 A.D. And they were scattered all over the world. And yet they maintained their language. They maintained their culture. They maintained their religion. They maintained their ethnicity, their Jewish blood. And they maintained some of their uh, future ideas in terms of how God was going to deal with them. Uh, the book of Revelation kind of completes the picture on what God is going to do with the nation of Israel particularly. Not just those theological ideas that I gave you, but Israel particularly. In fact, you might even call that Israel. We could have added Israelology to the list there. And actually, when we get to chapter 4, I'm going to give you a little introduction to why are these events in the book of Revelation? If you really think about it, the church really doesn't have much of an eschatology or much of a uh, revelation concerning its future. Uh, the basic thing about uh, eschatology in terms of the church, basically the rapture uh, and the, the uh, Bema seat and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And, that's, and then we spend uh, the millennium with Jesus Christ, and that's church eschatology, not, not a whole lot. Uh, most of eschatology from our point in the future is Jewish. Most eschatology is Jewish eschatology. And the book of Revelation, I'm going to give you some background to help you interpret some of the passages. Much of the background is Jewish. Much of it is Old Testament. God is going to consummate and complete all of the covenants. The better you know the Old Testament, the easier will be your understanding of the book of Revelation. When I was that young believer trying to figure out the book of Revelation, uh, I had some pretty good resources and I virtually knew very little about the Old Testament, but I had to go back and learn a little bit about the Old Testament to understand the book of Revelation. So it gave me a real good foundation for studying the whole Bible. So those of you, and a lot of you, uh, particularly those of, that are part of this church, have a real good background of the Old Testament. book of Revelation is going to be a snap for you. Because most of the eschatology is Jewish. Most of the book of Revelation deals with a seven-year period of time that is yet future. Chapters 4 through 19 deal with a seven-year period of time. It's not the church period of time. It's the last week of Jewish history. So most of eschatology is Jewish. So... This period of tribulation is anticipated by the Old Testament. Now it's coming to fulfillment. It's coming to completion. Even the second coming of Jesus Christ, uh, Christ comes for us in the rapture. The second coming is for Israel. Now, I mean, we participate and are part of it, but the second coming is a Jewish concept. Uh, Israel awaiting her Messiah. So we're talking about Jewish Old Testament ideas that are coming to completion. Millennial kingdom, that's, that's not a church concept. 
Now, it's mentioned in the New Testament because we are related to what happens in the kingdom, but that's an Old Testament idea. If you understand the kingdom, David, Solomon, and what God was doing in that period of time, all of the elements that God developed in that period of time, that kingdom age, that was the high point of Israel's history, all of that are part of the structure of the millennial kingdom. So if you understand all of that, uh, you understand what God's doing in the book. So uh, that's a major purpose here. How God's bringing all of the promises, all of his work, bringing it to completion, bringing it to consummation. This Computer's slow for some reason. <clears throat> Haven't figured out how to fix it. Well, what are some of the major characteristics? We're, we're moving along a lot faster than I thought, which is good. Maybe we'll get further. What are some of the major characteristics? Let's look at the first one and then we'll take a break. Uh, what's the genre of the book? In other words, what's the literary form? Uh, there's a lot of disagreement amongst the scholars, and some even have this idea that maybe it's a mixed genre. Uh, personally, I think we can summarize it by calling it prophetic, but let me share some ideas as to what others also have thought about in terms of uh, the nature of the literature that we're talking about. Do you know what genre is? It's literary form. You know what literary form? Poetry or... We talked a little bit about that at the beginning. Some see some epistolary elements. And you're going to see an introduction that is something like what you see when you read Ephesians or Romans or some of the letters that Paul wrote. So it has some epistolary features. The conclusion is also in some ways similar to some of the letters. So some see some epistolary features. Now, they wouldn't call it an epistle, but they see some features. Uh, the letters of chapters 2 and 3 are like little epistles. In fact, in the hermeneutics class, I had a trick question. <laughs> I asked the question, how many, and I've already given you the answer here, uh, or at least part of the answer. There are 27 letters in the New Testament. 13 of Paul and general epistles, and if you include Hebrews, there's... Um, or, or there's 20... No, there's 27... I'm getting this thing mixed up. There's 27 books of the New Testament. The question is, how many epistles? The answer is more than uh, what you might think if you just counted Paul and the general epistles. Actually, there's 30 because you have to add these seven that are in the book of Revelation 
And then there's two more. Do you know where there's two more besides the letters of Paul? I think there's 21 letters, 13 Paul, and if you include Hebrews, you end up with 21. And then you have seven, so that's 28. So where are the other two? I'm not sure which one you're referring to. No, that's one of the... No. No, that would be included in the 21. There are two in the book of Acts. <laughs> you didn't remember? Two in the book of Acts. One, uh, The one after the Jerusalem Council. They write a little epistle and it gives us gives us uh, a little uh, synopsis of that letter. So, well, why don't we stop here? We'll take a break and uh, we'll come back and finish looking at characteristics.